The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Great God, our Heavenly Father, Creator, Ruler, Sustainer of the whole universe, how thankful we are that you have provided to us a chief prophet who speaks and is your word to us, a great high priest who presents himself as the final atoning sacrifice to bring us into your presence, and a mighty king who rules and defends us by his word and spirit. Father, thank you for Jesus. Encourage us as we look at him through your word in these moments this morning. We come to you to that throne of grace that he has opened for us in his great name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the text of our meditation is the first four verses of the Sermon to the Hebrews. Um, and so I'm going to begin with chapter 13, verse 22 where at the conclusion, the author-preacher says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. And he opens that word of exhortation in this way, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And as we see in the next verse, that is the name of the messianic son. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As far God's word. I read that concluding, almost concluding verse of Hebrews to remind us that this is the way that the author to the Hebrews presents this whole book, which we often call an epistle, but he calls a word of exhortation or a word of encouragement, logos parakleseos. Um, you may not have gotten to parakleseos yet, but parakaleo is encourage or exhort. It sort of straddles the line between encouragement, cheer up, and exhortation, buck up. It's in that ballpark, stimulating us to a right response, a faithful a full, full of faith response to the word of God. Now, interestingly, that same expression appears in Acts 13, verse 15, where Paul and Barnabas arrive in Antioch of Pisidia, and as is their custom, they go right to the synagogue, and the leaders of the synagogue invite them to speak, saying, if you have a word of exhortation, a word of encouragement for the people, say it. And what follows is an exposition and an application of the scriptures through the mouth of Paul. In other words... A sermon. So here we have at the head of what we sometimes call the general epistles, a sermon. 
a word of exhortation, a word of encouragement. And that puts a certain light on this whole book that we'll be meditating on as Dr. Bob began to introduce us to it two weeks ago and throughout this semester. It is to be preached and heard, so the author so often introduces scripture quotations, not with, it is written, as Paul typically does, but rather, he is saying, or he is testifying. But not only that, its aim is to stimulate us to perseverance in our faith. I have a commentary on my shelf that treats Hebrews as a theological discourse interrupted by application. I couldn't disagree more. It's application supported by rich, rich theology. Application is the goal of the theology. It's not a bad model for us to keep in mind on a seminary campus. So that poses the question, why start a sermon that is aimed toward encouragement with this deep, rich theology, this doctrine of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that the first thing we need to hear if if we were the Hebrew Christians in the first century, if we are facing family rejection, uh, seizure of property, potential violence even, for the sake of following Jesus as Messiah. Why do we need this first of all? And the short answer is because we need our, our hearts absolutely convinced that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the very best gifts that God had given to his people in the generations before. And those were good gifts. God spoke through the prophets. God spoke. Israel doesn't have to try to trick the gods into letting them know what the secret of the universe is. Their God, the true and living God, spoke through the prophets. That's good for that time long ago. But so much better. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. Actually, these verses introduce us. It's a beautiful prologue because it introduces us the main themes of the whole book of Hebrews to Jesus as the great message of God, to Jesus as the display of the majesty of God, to Jesus' mission, especially in his priestly work, bringing us to God, and then to Jesus' messianic enthronement as king, prophet, priest, and king, right here in these four verses. Priesthood is central. Hebrews 8, verse 1 says, that's the main point I'm getting at in this whole sermon. We have a high priest who has gone into heaven. But prophet, priest, and king are all central to Jesus' ministry as well. So God's message in these last days, God's message at last to us in the Son is so much better. It's come once for all. Previously, God spoke in many parts and in many modes, different forms of revelation and vision and words and other ways. But now he's spoken in his son. Now for Hebrews, what that means is the once for all revelation is the complete revelation. Work on through Hebrews and you soon find that if there are a lot of anything, that means it's not complete. You have to have lots of priests, as he says in chapter 7, because death prevents any one priest from continuing in office, especially the high priest, from standing before God on behalf of Israel every Yom Kippur. No, 
Year after year, priests die. Many priests until the one comes who holds his priesthood forever in the order of Melchizedek. Many priests in completion. In completion. One priest, the once for all priest. Many sacrifices. Why? Because they couldn't cleanse the conscience. But now... Jesus has offered the once-for-all sacrifice. No more animals need die. No more blood needs to be shed. The final sacrifice has been offered. So what is Hebrews doing right here? He's saying, in the Son, God has spoken the decisive word. It's not surprising that the whole New Testament canon is delivered within that generation that witnessed the Son's words and deeds There's a completeness, there's a wholeness to it. There's a sufficiency to scripture as it's now brought to its completeness. God's message is full. All we need to know, we see in the Son. So when we wonder which of the many competing voices to listen to in this world, which word gives us the real truth about how to get close to God, this word of God says, listen to the Father's final word the son in which he has spoken. For the Hebrews, family and friends and the leaders of their own people were calling them to come back into the visible, tangible security of the institutions that God had ordained for the time of promise and shadow for Israel. But this preacher says, don't go back. You've heard the final word from the son, through the son, in the son. Hold fast to him. Jesus, the Son of God, is our chief prophet. And then he goes on to show us how we should regard this Son in terms of the fact that he is the display of the majesty of God. In verses 2 and 3, he is the one, beginning or the middle of verse 2, whom God appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature upholding the universe by the word of his power. He is the owner and heir of the created universe. He's the agent of the universe's creation. He's the sustainer of the universe. He keeps it all going in an existence. He is the radiant display of the Father's majesty. Hebrews is here echoing an intertestamental book that was known among the Greek-speaking Jews, uh, the book of wisdom, uh, sometimes called Sirach, which extolled wisdom as the radiance of God's glory. Hebrews says, no, it's better than that. I'm not just talking about a personified attribute of God. I'm talking about the person who is the Son in intimate, eternal communion with the Father and with the Spirit, who is the ultimate display of the glory of God. He's saying, in other words, what we read in the prologue to John's gospel, all things were made through this word, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's saying, in other words, what we hear from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, this son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, that is, the preeminent heir of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were made through him and for him. He's the heir. It belongs to him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If we ever had any doubt that God's son speech 
was and is qualitatively superior to prophet speech, the identity of the Son, the way he displays the glory of the Father in his incarnation, should put that doubt to rest once for all. You've heard the best because you've heard the Father speak in the Son. If you want to know God the Father, Jesus is the only route to come to him. But we need more than revelation. We need more than information about God. We need reconciliation. We need atonement. If we know God in all of his holiness and his light displays our sin and there's no atonement, we're ruined. And so the writer goes on in one very brief phrase to introduce what is really the main theme of the sermon and it's this phrase, having made purification for sins. We've been talking about who the Son is in eternity. We've been talking about who the Son is as the creator, as the providential sustainer of the whole cosmos. Suddenly we're plunged right into history. He made purification for sins. Are you shocked by that? Think about what he's just said about the Son. The radiance of the glory of God. Think about what the Bible always says about what is necessary for purification of sins. Bloodshed is necessary for our guilt to be forgiven. How in the world can this radiant, eternal Son who holds the universe in existence make purification for sins in the only way that sins can be purified for? Through the shedding of his blood. Hebrews will tell us that, chapter 2, because the children share flesh and blood. He partook of the same so that by his death he might put to death the power of the one who could inflict death, that is the devil, and set us free. What amazing love. We can't even begin to understand the incarnation, the eternal son becoming our brother, sharing our flesh and blood, sharing our human nature. And then living his innocent life. Hebrews is the one that reminds us that he is without sin, start to finish, having gone through every temptation. And then offering himself up under our curse. The mission of the Son to purify us. To bring us into the presence of God. How can we not be encouraged and fortified to follow such a Savior through thick and thin, for better, for worse, The Son who lives forever took our human nature and died the death that we deserve to make us sons and daughters of the living God, purified. Not only freed from the penalty of death, but as Hebrews says, purified to become a new priesthood, to offer worship, to offer sacrifices well-pleasing to God. The once-for-all atoning sacrifice has been offered by Jesus on the cross but we can offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving in sharing with one another, in doing good deeds, in singing and making melody in our hearts, offering with the lips purged by grace praises to God's name. And finally, we get to verse 4, and then really on into the set of Old Testament quotations that follow. We come to the messianic enthronement of the Son. So we've seen the Son in his eternity, in his creative power, in his incarnation for the purpose of death, and then exaltation 
as especially focusing on his royal, kingly rule, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then he quotes from Psalm 2, the first of seven quotations that will fill the rest of this first chapter. He is better than the angels. He is the, not only the eternal divine son, he is now the exalted incarnate messianic son. The son of David who has fulfilled his mission perfectly and is exalted. And so acclaimed by the father by his resurrection, acclaimed as the messianic son, ruling at the father's right hand. Hebrews will talk to us quite a bit about a rather mysterious figure in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, a priest of God most high, but also king of Salem. And Hebrews says Melchizedek was a preview of another priest who was also a king. And what encouragement we get from the fact that Jesus is king. As eternal son and as glorified messianic son, he is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. The Hebrews knew well that the world is not a friendly place. They or their fellow believers had been shunned, robbed, imprisoned, perhaps beaten. Perhaps even worse was on the near horizon for them. In North America, we may be shielded from some forms of the world's hostility to Jesus and his people, but we still face opposition and obstacles that tempt us to lose heart, to wonder whether the details of our life are within the control of our king. Hebrews says, yes, he is at the Father's right hand. He's ruling over all. Be encouraged. Your king who loved you so that he gave himself for you is on the throne of the universe, ruling all things by the word of his power, directing all history toward the consummation of his new creation for his glory and for your eternal joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great word of encouragement, even in these opening phrases and sentences of this great word of encouragement. You direct our hearts to the one who is the source of our encouragement, the one on whom you ground your exhortation to us, to hold fast and to hold close to Jesus. Jesus, the radiance of your majesty, your final message to us, the word made flesh, the one who accomplished his priestly mission to purify us of our sins, the one who rules at your right hand. Father, encourage us. Exhort us in the light of the reality of the Savior who has died to make us his own. We pray in his name. Amen. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.